0: Hey everyone, um, before we get started here, uh, bef- in the time between recording this episode and the release of it, uh, Leonard Nimoy, who played Spock in the original series and plenty of other roles in other movies and shows and directed Star Trek 3 and 4, passed away. And so we want to do just a quick little thing
1: yeah. before the episode gets started. Oh, well, correction, I think he directed too as well, didn't he?
0: No, uh, Nicholas Meyer director Star Trek. Oh, that's Star right,
1: Trek. that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, obviously this, this actor had, has had a massive impact, not only on Star Trek, but most of everything he's been in. um, And, uh, he definitely had an effect on my life, I know, on your life, and everything else. Uh, particularly, uh, I grew up with Star Trek 4, seeing that pretty repeatedly. My parents had that on uh, VHS, but as an adult, I think Star Trek II, Earth of Khan, uh, him playing the resolved character to go do his death, uh, yeah, it still brings tears to my eyes.
0: Uh, I, I don't think I'll be able to rewatch that movie for a while right now.
1: Yeah. No, there's no Genesis planet nearby. So uh, um
0: yeah, for me, I mean the movie that actually got me back into Star Trek, um actually I think it was about ten years ago now, was Rewatching Star Trek Six where Leonard Nimoy actually had a lot of input on the story of it and it was from understanding it was basically his idea for the concept of the movie of like the Berlin Wall coming down in space. Mm-hmm. And I, I always remember, I mean, of course, we always remember his quotes from Star Trek too, but it, one of the moments I really loved in Star Trek Six was at the very end when they get the orders to go back into space dock yeah. and de- be decommissioned, where he goes, if I were human, I believe my response would be, go to hell, if I were human.
1: Funny that they had Data kind of pretty much reprise that insurrection.
0: Oh, yeah. the uh, To hell with our orders. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we just wanted to do a quick remembrance. And, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd, I'd say we dedicate this episode of our podcast to his memory. Yeah, Via Condios. And, and so, thank you, Leonard Nimoy, for years upon years of for everything you've done for not just Star Trek but
1: all other movies TV shows thank you and especially that Hobbit song <laughs> yeah we need to laugh
0: so. yeah
1: I, I think you'd like that yeah
0: see you alright see so you next time folks take care everyone and enjoy the episode
1: it's been a long long time. Getting from there to here It's been a long time But my time is finally
0: here It's been a long time Getting from there to here It's been a long time But my time is finally here
1: Hi everyone My ears They (laughs) played (laughs)
0: <laughs> Welcome back to the Frustrated Fans. We're preventing frustrations and breaking eardrums, one ear and one fandom at a time. I'm your singer, Jeremy.
1: Oh,
0: I'm your other <laughs> host, Pete. <laughs> and today we're going to be covering two episodes of Star Trek Enterprise.
1: Uh, Broken two and a half.
0: <laughs> yeah, Broken Bow, or Why the Network Knows Nothing About Time Travel, and regeneration, or Borg equals ratings! Pretty much. So, Star Trek Enterprise was the fourth and final spin off of the series. Well, the original series, TNG.
1: essentially, yeah.
0: Yep, of the original series. It premiered in September 2001, only a few months after Star Trek Voyager ended its seventh season. And as a switch up, whereas TNG. DS9 and Voyager kind of followed the same story, the same time period and everything, with Voyager being, like, the finale of it all. Well, kind of, or just the end of it. They actually decided to go back to before the original series and show, like, humanity first going off into deep space. And this show focused around Earth's first-ever Warp 5-capable starship, the NX-01 Enterprise.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I don't think the main original Constitution Enterprise could do much more than warp five. Um, I'll look it up.
0: Yeah, they could probably do like warp six or so, something like that. I don't remember all the old ones. Um, but yeah, so the first two seasons of the show pretty much was just humanity kind of dicking around, going to new worlds, meeting new races, pissing off new races, sentencing some worlds to death. Breaking stuff, screwing up, contaminating primitive cultures—you know all the stuff that the later shows didn't do.
1: Which some of it was understandable because it was their um, oh here first we go. Try. Yep, never hmm. mind. They had they could do warp eight as a maximum normal speed. Oh, okay. So I'm an idiot. Never mind. <laughs> Ignore me. Okay, Merrick. That's, <laughs> so that was a reference to Venture Brothers, Chief. Oh, I was thinking from. Yes, I know,
0: which he got it from Venture Brothers. Oh, I see, I didn't know that. The And the more I know. Yep. So, in the first two seasons, a, one minor story arc in Enterprise was the Temporal Cold War arc, which we'll get into later. After struggling with dropping ratings and a massive loss of viewership for the first two seasons, uh, to put it in perspective, the premiere had about 12 million viewers – And by the end of season two, they had about three to four million. Mm. Nice job, guys. Not to mention the fact that during this time was when Nemesis came out and utterly bombed in theaters. So in order of a way to basically give the show a new direction and get the ratings back up and save the show because it was being threatened with cancellation, the finale of season two took them into a completely new direction. And season three basically focused on an entire story arc, and this was the first time and only time where a season of a Star Trek show only had one plot line to it with little mini plots in it. Uh, DS9 kind of did something like this with season seven, where a huge part of it was the Dominion War, but that wasn't the major focus. I mean, it was a background focus for a lot of episodes and a major focus for some, but it wasn't like the only plot line that was going on. And so for season three of Enterprise, it was the Enterprise was sent to track down a race called the Zindi. Because the Zindi decided to release a giant weapon uh, that killed over 7 million people on Earth. Rock on. And we're developing one to actually destroy Earth. This season was actually better received critically, and unlike losing millions of viewers, they only lost about 100,000. So good for them. It was very well done overall. Season four, once again, completely doing something completely different, though it started off with a really, really, really stupid two-parter featuring, yes, time-traveling alien Nazis from the future.
1: I don't even want to know.
0: But then also, one of the biggest changes was instead of Rick Berman and Brandon Braga being the big executive producers of the show, the main showrunner status was handed over to Manny Cotto, and what he decided to do was create little mini-arcs throughout the season to basically bridge the gap between Enterprise and the original series. So we got to see, like, the beginning of the Federation Alliance, we saw the Vulcan Society changing, and they even went, they did a two-parter to explain the loss of the Klingon forehead ridges. I like that. During season four, ratings actually started to climb. They got back viewers, but UPN would then cancel the show. And they were notified about roughly halfway through, which did allow them to create an actual
1: series finale, which everybody hated. I haven't even seen it in all I know. They forced a Next Generation story on that show. They did.
0: Uh, Basically, the entire episode, in-universe, none of the characters are actually in it. It's Riker on a holodeck. Oh. And the entire episode takes place during the Season 7 TNG episode, The Pegasus, which was actually a very good episode, but the events in this one actually have nothing really to do with it. It's like they're retconning stuff from that story. And... I'm not going to say who. They actually kill off one of the main characters off screen. Oh,
1: Lord. You know, I yeah. read a book to this effect where <laughs> Picard was preparing for, I don't know, a treaty signing or something. And he actually goes back and reviews Kirk's logs from the episode where Kirk is split into two personalities. Mm-hmm. But you know what? It makes sense within the storyline of the book. hmm Picard doesn't know how to face a situation, so he looks up a pretty similar one that Kirk had to face. Yeah, with
0: this one, the events in Enterprise have nothing to do with what happens in the TNG episode. So instead of watching this, I would actually recommend people go watch The Pegasus from TNG Season 7. It's a very good episode, a very good character episode for Riker. Not only that, this one even reverted characterizations from the Enterprise crew and retconned a lot of stuff, including the very well done trip into Paul romance that was done in seasons three and four. And Archer became a complete moron again. Great job, guys.
1: Yeah.
0: So, like I said, season four, the showrunner was Manny Cotto. However, for this one, Rick Berman and Brandon Braga decided to return, produce, and write this episode. And when they released it, At the time, they actually said it was a valentine to the fans, but after the massive backlash, Rick Berman said in an interview that if he knew what the reaction was going to be, he would not have done it. To take it up an even further level, in another interview on one of the Enterprise Blu-rays, I'm not sure which one, uh, Brandon Braga flat out apologized for this episode and said it was a narcissistic move on his and Berman's part. So he admitted the fact that he should not have done this. So you know what? That takes a lot of guts to just stay, you know, walk out and say, I'm sorry, I screwed up. And there were ideas for a fifth season, which actually involved a lot of conflict with the Romulans, which you do see a little bit of in season four. And there was, there was always hope for one. And lately, some people have actually expressed interest for like a feature-length send-off for the series, including Scott Bakula, who has mentioned that he's been contacted by a fan who has the entire bridge set
1: at his house. No! That's one hell of a fan. It wouldn't be the first one. Remember yeah. the uh, episode James Doohan replies as role as Scotty on Next Generation? Yep. They didn't have the original set from the for origin, for original series. What you saw was a fan recreation that they oh, borrowed. Wow. Nerd! Uh, and uh,
0: Brandon Braga has also expressed interest in wanting to do like a fine finale – for the, a real finale for the show, probably also to make up for the one they did. But – Since there's nothing official from Paramount about this, they haven't even mentioned the show. Uh, Right now it's just kind of hopeful wishes from some fans. We're going to get into our, well, kind of limited knowledge about the show before we started watching it, uh, right after a quick break. We may need to defer to their judgment. We've been deferring to their judgment for a hundred years. John. How much longer?
1: Until you've proven you're ready. Ready to what? To look beyond your provincial attitudes and your volatile nature.
0: Volatile? You have no idea how much I'm restraining myself from knocking you on your ass.
1: And we're back. So at this point uh, with my experience with Star Trek, I was definitely catching the movies. wasn't touching the series. I remember finishing out Next Generation and maybe The Rare, and then I watched the first season of Voyager, but that was about it. I didn't even touch DS9 Mm. myself. But as the series was going on, I remember catching one or two, three epi- or three episodes randomly, and I gotta bring this up. Don't get me wrong, the song is not bad out of its own merits, but the theme song for this series is bad. Okay? And I'm not saying that the original series theme song is great. It's a product, it is firmly a product of its time. It is obvi- the sound is obviously 60s, 70s, and 70s, with the bongos and everything else, and cheesy female singer singing no lyrics, <laughs> at least for the second theme. They had a first theme that was okay as well. But the grand opera, the grand classical themes that marked Next Generation, which admittedly was a copy from the first movie, to DS9 and Voyager set the tone. And I get that they're trying to do something different, but it fails here. It really does. It doesn't set me in a mood for fun or exploration. It's just like, why are they have a bad pop song? That was literally my first thought when I saw this series for the first time. See, I was just completely caught off guard because I didn't know it. That was one of the only
0: things I didn't know about the show before I started watching it. Before I did, all I heard was, the beginning sucks, season four is really good. That's pretty much all I knew. And so when the theme song started up, I was like, Wait, what? Huh. Oh, this was kind of neat. Yeah. I mean, I'll admit, my favorite theme is TNG. Oh, yeah. Because it's just, it has that go get, like, just fast paced fun <laughs> feel to it. And as much as I like DS9, I don't really care for the. Intro to the show is it's just boring. It says here's a few shots of the space station. Put yeah, they could have done
1: better with so that. I yeah,
0: know. with season four they did bump up that theme a little bit, but even then it eh, it's just okay. And
1: see what you um, want about Voyager. It the theme song conveyed the theme of traveling.
0: I did like the theme song to Voyager. I mean, it's not it's not as good as TNG's, but I do I do think the music was very well done. And I don't blame them for try- – I honestly don't blame them for trying something new, and this one is – heck, I mean, they had been going since 1987. It was – at this point, and ratings had been dropping, so they wanted to try something different, trying to separate this one from the previous shows. So props for trying.
1: Yes, definitely. So, uh, but uh, again, I caught one or two or three off episodes, and um, the very first one I saw, one of the male crew, I think, this Trip. first officer?
0: It was Tripp, yeah, the chief engineer. Yeah,
1: he gets yeah. pregnant. Yeah, I'm with sorry. With an alien species. I'm sorry. And I admit there were some few jokes that at least had me smiling, like the his male crewmen, even the captain, um, not having a hard time keeping their composure around him and laughing in the scenario.
0: There's actually a good... Uh you fail at construction moment in this episode in that episode where uh Trip because he's supposed to be getting like all hormonal because he's pregnant and he puts his hand on a handrail and he almost gets his hand cut off because like it goes right through like a little piece of metal and he goes look at this when you put your hand on this handrail your arm would come right off and so this guy looks up at him and goes but sir why would
1: you put your hand there it's a handrail you dumbass yeah the other major episode I remember seeing was – and you've told me this is kind of like the jumping the shark moment – was where Archer's dog, Porthos, is near death because some an oh, no, extraterrestrial real... pathogen. This was
0: the double tapping the show in the back of the head moment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, there was this... also another one with removing a mine that was attached to the ship, and like Archer was having to basically tell this crew member, I'm not going to abandon you, you know. Yeah,
0: That was a decent episode, and they actually – the episode that came out right after it mm-hmm. called Dead Stop was the direct sequel to it. So they actually – there was no reset button of all of a sudden Reed is better than in the next episode. Okay. So I would recommend checking out that if you want to see how they resolved it.
1: Okay. So each time I wasn't that impressed. You can tell the crew were giving it their all, but there wasn't like – there wasn't impressive characters to start – to keep me coming back. I mean, when I look at Next Generation, I mean, Data is interesting. He's probably the most interesting character, one of the most interesting characters they've ever got. Granted, he can be, in series, he can be boring as sin to the other characters, but how he reacts to them is one of the most interesting parts. Riker has a sense of fun, and he's got Kirk's libido. <laughs> and Warfirm, uh, what what can I say? Let me quote you. Eat any book, good books lately? <laughs>
0: he he got better I as know. that show went on. And in DS9, he got he got more character development in DS9, in the seasons of DS9 he was in, than all seven of the ones he was in. in oh, T-M3. I believe
1: it. I like the character. Yeah. But yeah. he starts off and, you know, to have a Klingon on a Federation ship was a huge thing at the time.
0: And... They did do some good stuff with him early, like one of my two favorite – the of the of season one, I liked two episodes of that. One of them was, of course, Data Lore because that was a good one, mm-hmm. and the other one was Heart of Glory where it was the very – it was kind of like the prelude to Worf having to like kind of – it's that conflict between his life in Starfleet and being a Klingon.
1: But so he brought something unique to it. Ultimately – again, I just don't think I wasn't impressed – there is definitely a sense of fun and exploration isn't there, and I think a lot of it is due no matter what this series does, no matter what characters die or leave or come back, all the other series are going to happen anyway. There is – the stakes aren't there.
0: Uh, I'll agree to that. Like As much as I love season three of this show, it has nothing to do with the other shows, and – Obviously, the events in it are never mentioned again in the other shows because they came up with the ideas for it afterwards, which is probably my only real complaint with season three. I actually never saw this show during its original run, and I –
1: I only saw the couple episodes I mentioned during their – Yeah,
0: I – well, while it was going, I wasn't really interested in Star Trek anymore, and I slowly started getting back into it in 2004, the first series I watched after kind of getting back into it as I watched some of the movies was Voyager. And I liked Voyager when I saw it. Looking back on it, yeah, it's not as good as TNG or DS9, but it's not a bad it, – it has its good moments. And so I didn't watch this show at all until a couple of years ago after I watched all of Deep Space Nine. And I had heard all the critiques and everything about it. Oh, the beginning sucks. Oh, season four is really good. Heard nothing about season three for some reason. But I was like, eh, I'll give it a try. I watched the first two seasons and about three episodes into season three and then I just kind of gave up because one of my problems was season three takes a really good, serious, dramatic turn. But I had a hard time taking it seriously because it was still filled with the same morons from the first two seasons. And I actually noticed if you jump straight from season two to the final episode of the show, the finale isn't really all that bad because you won't won't realize how much better the show got. Mm -hmm. So I did notice that. I eventually watched season four later on, and then I went back and watched season three. And I like season three and four of this show, but I'll freely admit the first two seasons, eh, not that good.
1: So that just begs the question. How do the episodes that we particularly watched hold up? And in a lot of ways, it's, a lo- it's almost unfair to judge a pilot. It really is because you never know how – Grant, while a pilot may set the overall tone of a show, what that show ultimately becomes can be a lot different.
0: I'll agree to that. Very, There are very few shows where I can look back at, like, the pilot and be like, yeah, this set up everything really well. Like, Futurama had a fantastic pilot, mm-hmm. and it holds up even with the rest of the show because it's the beginning of everything. Right. That's the only instance I can think of off the top of my head
1: where the pilot actually holds up with the rest of the show. And then you've got pilots who ultimately kill the series they're even trying to make – I still haven't tracked it down, but I'm trying to find the Wonder Woman TV pilot NBC put out a couple of years ago. Well, I, I, generated, I've but... Pieces. I've seen pieces. It's it's supposed to be that it, bad, I know. It's bad. Right? Or even look at cartoon pilots, say the Avenger Brothers, to bring that up again. It's got all the basics from the series, even if its animation is, you know, done in quickly and in flash, but... Where the series has gone is completely different. The series has definitely developed these huge characters, and Brock isn't just a bloodthirsty psychopath. Even if that's I mean, the well, best part of the pilot, <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I mean, even looking at all of the Star Trek pilots outside of the original series one, which, which have you
1: seen, seen the episode? No,
0: the, it's the episode where no man has gone before. And it
1: doesn't even have Kirk. I know.
0: No, no, that's that was the ori- No, that was the very first pilot. I'm talking about the one with Kirk.
1: No, uh, I don't okay. think I have.
0: Okay, that one was, of the pilots, it's actually the best one, period. Um, it mm-hmm. sets up the show pretty well of them, you know, trying to seek out new, th- new forms of life, new things. It's a decent episode. I mean, it's not as good as, like, Space Seed or some of the other, like, classic ones. Well,
1: like, Space Seed's still, like, the best, heb- heb- yeah, but continue. <laughs> yeah,
0: it, I mean, it's not as good as some of those, but it's actually a pretty solid episode. And I'd argue Far Point, I mean, uh
1: Encounter at Far Point from Next Generation it's flawed. But it oh it's God. good.
0: Ugh, Ugh. I I'll, I'll
1: it's, I it's it. good because it introduces Q.
0: This is true. I, I, to be honest, my favorite part of that episode is the scene with bones.
1: <laughs> where yeah, you have bones and data, he yeah, he calls data a Vulcan, I know.
0: Yeah, I really like that scene, especially with the music playing during it too. I thought that was a
1: very good scene. There's, all, it's also one of my best ending lines to a pilot is, yet Picard just kind of evoking that sense of exploration. He he does that. He sits down. He's like, "Let's see what's out there." And, yeah. Gr-
0: granted, this episode also contains plenty of the awfulness of early Counselor Troy. Huh. Yeah. Uh, and. Riker being a bit of a douche. Tasha Yar being completely worthless and making you not surprised that Denise Crosby wanted to leave. Worf just kind of being there. Yeah. And at one point, pointing a phaser at a screen.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Again, I like the episode because how can you not like a Q episode? I mean. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, have you seen True Q? <laughs> Which one is that? That's the one where he uh where you find out that this one girl is actually like the daughter of 2Q but she's part human and Q's there to try to teach her how to be a Q and she takes control of Riker's mind so he'll like her but she's like 16 Okay, no I have not. Yeah, it's not very good. It it's got some decent moments where Q snaps where Crusher's yelling at Q he snaps his fingers and it turns her into a dog and she's just going "Woof" <laughs> and so he snaps his finger again. She's back to him. He goes, "I understand your point."
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> See, it's it's moments like that, or or the one of the Voyager episodes when he's trying to seduce Janeway and she's just not having any of it. <laughs> I've seen that. One. And at the end, when he does the quote mating with the other Q and it's just then put touching their fingers together, and Jay was just like, "That's sucks? it," and she's <laughs> like. Don't complain, you had your chance. (laughs) We'll
0: we'll, uh, bring up the other two pilots right after a short break.
1: I'm just not interested in you. Any more questions? I was wondering, Kathy, what could anyone possibly see in this big oaf anyway? Is it the tattoo? Because mine's bigger. Okay, so that just leads DS9 and Voyager. Yeah. Which,
0: DS9's... Premiere in hindsight it's actually decent because it does set up a lot of the stuff in the show it doesn't set up some things but I I did like I do like that one I think it's one of the strong I honestly think it's next to TOS it's the strongest pilot
1: Mm
0: -hmm. is that one actually does set up a lot of the plot lines that go through till the end of the show. Such as, like, Bajor recovering from the Cardassian occupation, the wormhole being discovered, which the wormhole is a huge part of the entire story. I mean, yes, it has its problems. The fact that, I can't, I can't remember the actress's name, but the one who played Jetzia, her acting in this episode
1: sucked.
0: She was terrible. and Not to mention the fact that Bashir was portrayed as a naive idiot which he eventually becomes a very good character. He goes through a lot of development in that show. DS9's Emissary was actually pretty decent, and it also starts off with a bang where you get the fight with the Borg at Wolf 359.
1: Then that leaves Voyager's pilot, which, again, it's not the strongest episode in the series, but it does set up everything that's involved. I mean, Voyager is wrecked to crap. Uh, Suddenly, all on the other side of the galaxy... And they have to partner with the Maquis, which the Federation didn't exactly like at the point.
0: No. The the problem is, my problem with Voyager's premiere is one, it has some dumb moments in it. I, I mean not to disparage the character of Quark from DS9, which I do like him. I think he's one of the best examples of Ferengi mm-hmm. in a good way. TNG got Bones to send them off. DS9 got the card to send them off. Voyager got Quark to send them off. Yeah, yeah. Which again, I like Quark. I think he's a good character. He gets some great moments, including a comedy episode, "The Magnificent Ferengi," which is one of the funniest episodes in any of the shows. Where a group of Ferengi take, like go to uh, go through like covert operations to rescue to uh, go up against the Dominion. It is really good. Oh, yeah. So there's that. Yeah, it does set up the concept of, like, oh, it's the Maquis now have to work with the Starfleet people, and, you yeah, know, Voyager's kind of wrecked. Well, in the very next episode, Voyager's perfectly fine again, and by the end of the first couple seasons, there's, like, no conflict between the Maquis and the Starfleet people. So, that I mean, that's more of problems created in the show later on, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, then just some of the moments in it of, they go to the Kazon to bargain with them to and offer them water... When the Kazon have flight capability and could leave the planet to go get water somewhere else. Not
1: flight. They have – they can – they're a a threat out there. Their ships are big.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, granted, the Kazon are freaking idiots, but still. Yeah. (laughs) So so there's, like, moments like that. That and everything with the caretaker isn't uh, followed up on very well later on in the show. No. Most of the problems with Voyager's pilot result from the
1: fact that follow-ups to it weren't done very well.
0: In some cases.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. So that just leaves us Broken Bow. And it's an interesting start to the series. The Federation isn't really a thing yet. It's not even a concept yet. So we're starting basically 90 years after First Contact. And while humanity has notably, they've eliminated war and poverty on the planet, we're we're still not exactly a big spacefaring series. We're pretty limited to Earth at this point.
0: Yeah, they I mean, they've sent out like we find out there are, like cargo ships and stuff, but they're limited to very low warp speeds. Uh-huh. So one of the big concepts of this show is they are creating the very first and finishing the very first warp five ship, and. The Warp Five engine is going to let—it's a speed that lets them actually go and explore the galaxy.
1: Right. But this essentially, it's implied though, the last ninety years the Vulcan have been kind of like this godparents. Yeah,
0: they've Not been the good ones, either. Yeah, they've been hold- they keep saying like the Vulcans have been holding back technology, not giving them, you know, kind of limiting what they can do. In a later episode, um First Flight, they reveal that the Vulcans keep making them jump through hoops just before, you know, before they can even do a test flight. Kind of one of the problems early on is they don't really explain why. Like they kind of say like, "Oh, you're not ready to explore the galaxy." Well, it's like, "Well, why don't you Follow up on that, you know, see why they're not ready yet. You know, what are they missing? What can they, you know, give them? man, kind of give them an idea of what they can
1: do. They still think and, we're a barbaric species. Yeah. And in the universe when the Klingons have space travel. <laughs> yeah, that says something. Which brings us to the beginning of the episode.
0: Um, it Well, it first opens up with a boy named Jonathan Archer talking to his father, Henry, who is the man responsible for the Warp 5 engine, who's, like, started the construction of it. Fast forward to 2150, and a Klingon named Klang, yes, really, is on the run in a farm in Broken Bow, Oklahoma, from a pair of weird-looking aliens called the Sulaban, a race we've never heard of before this show and will never be mentioned ever again after this series. Or, heck, even after the first two episodes of Season 4. Clang actually ends up killing them by blowing up a corn silo, because apparently corn is made out of C4, I guess.
1: Well, to be fair, I mean, this is a real agricultural issue, and I'm basing this on Sim Farm, so take that for what you will. But you did have to watch what crops you kept together in the same silo, and based on temperature and weather. So I'm willing to give give it some slack there.
0: Okay. I I know later on they do mention that there was a methane explosion, so there was probably methane gas in there, too. Entirely possible. Yeah. So he acts like a badass. It's actually a pretty cool-looking explosion when he blows it up and, like, dodging away. Uh, But then he's quickly shot by a farmer named Moore, who is named after former Trek writer Ronald D. Moore, who wrote a ton of Klingon episodes. They eventually called him the Klingon guy. Meanwhile... In space above Earth, and completely unaware of ships crashing and landing on the planet. Okay, Captain Jonathan Archer, played by Scott Bakula, and engineer Charles Tripp Tucker, who's played by Connor Trenier, are in a pod inspecting the NXO-1 Enterprise, which is the Earth's first warp five ship.
1: And I need to pull out this. It's a much shorter ca- uh, callback, but I really got a sense they were pulling, they were referencing Star Trek One. Where Kirk gets to inspect the refit Enterprise. I believe this was inten- – that was intentional, yeah. yes.
0: In... Which thankfully it wasn't overextended and boring like it was in that movie. True.
1: But you also think... had – you had less the sense of wonder you did in that this,
0: scene. This is true. At least for the which, first minute. Yeah, which of course uh, is completely rude when Trip smacks into the stationary ship with pod.
1: He's not a very good driver.
0: No, he's not, which makes a later part of this episode really confusing. Uh-huh. So Archer is called to Starfleet Command, where Klang is being operated on by some surgeons, and one of the commanders say, says that, oh, he's called a Klingot, because he's an idiot too. Uh, the, Vulcans, uh, uh. the Vulcans want to take Klang back to Kronos, the Klingon homeworld themselves, though Archer wants to do, because what well, this happen on Earth's soil? Saval, a Vulcan ambassador, points out, well, if we hadn't cl- contacted the Klingon High Council, then Earth would be facing a fleet of warbirds, because Berman and Braga are idiots, Earth. and I forgot that uh, warbirds uh, are Romulan. Yeah. Oh, God. So they do eventually decide that Enterprise will take Klang back, though the Vulcans disagree, because
1: while they are kind of jerks in this episode... It's Earth. They're is not our planet, assholes.
0: Yeah, though it's also the fact that humans have never been outside of their own star system and don't even know where Kronos is because just ten minutes later we find out that they have to borrow Vulcan star charts to find it. We're ready to be on our own. Hey, can you guys lend us a map?
1: There those Borg again.
0: So Archer motions towards an alien doctor that was operating on Clang, and we're off. We are. Yep, so on the Enterprise, Lieutenant Malcolm Reed and Ensign Travis Mayweather, who are the security chief-slash-tactical officer and pilot, discuss how the ship isn't even ready to leave dry dock. This is further compounded by Starfleet sending them the wrong equipment.
1: <sighs> Wait a minute. Starfleet <sighs> kind of didn't have their stuff together.
0: No, they didn't. I do credit one moment in this, though, where both of them are kind of wary about actually using the transporter, because it's only been recently cleared to be used on living things, and as Reed points out, Archer wouldn't even put his dog in there.
1: Yeah, so, uh, question? Mm -hmm. How can there be a Starfleet before there's a Federation? Starfleet is the military wing of the Federation.
0: Well, and it's, it's Starfleet is the space exploration and military of Earth. Nerd!
1: Oh, that works. Never mind. Yeah.
0: So Archer then goes picks up who will be the woman who will be his communications officer, Hoshi Sato, and reveals that one of the Vulcans is coming along. And once you know it, it's the one in an earlier scene that Archer threatened to knock on her ass. Subcommander Tapal. T'Pol! Who's not an
1: idiot, but she is an asshole, so she's got that going for it her. kind of seems to, to be the Vulcan default here. I know. Um, we're, and uh, we're not talking Spock or even Tuvok or any other known uh, Vulcans like who, while they Sarah. may be annoyed by humans, they at least you know respect the fact that they're an equal species in the Federation –
0: Which we never really get a full reasoning why the Vulcans are jerks in this show. I I mean, part of it was, Berman and Braga did say what they wanted to do was the Vulcans were, you know, there was some conflict between Vulcans and humans. Which, fine, you want to have some natural flowing conflict in the show, I'm fine with that. That's one of the things that made DS9 really good. And one of the things that was supposed to set Voyager apart. But in this one, it just feels really forced. Yeah. Because... The humans are idiots and confrontational jerks, and the Vulcans are just dirtbags. Fantastic. And we'll get on to the introduction of the, probably the most likable character in the pilot, shortly after a quick break. And we'll be able to explore those strange new worlds and seek out new life and new civilizations. This engine will let us go
1: boldly And no man has gone before.
0: And we're back. And now we get to get introduced to the best character of the show through this point. Porthos, Archer's Beagle, who is adorable.
1: Aww. I really like him. And I'm not going to lie, while the episode is not good with fans, I actually liked the episode where Porthos is near death and Archer is losing his crap over it. I mean, the man is – it's his dog after all. Yeah, I understand that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I liked – when
0: I watched that episode originally, um, the one we're referencing is A Night in Sick Bay, which – yeah, go on. We're not going to cover that one. because you go online, you'll find plenty of people ripping that episode a new one, including one site, uh, the Agony Booth, where as they're ripping it a new one, they keep randomly showing screenshots of Porthos and going, oh, look at the puppy. What? I'm not made of stone. Yep. So after this and after the introduction of T'Pol, who comments that she doesn't like the smell of dogs or people. Wonderful.
1: Oh, yeah. Female Vulcans have better noses than anybody. Bow-chicka-bow-wow.
0: Enterprise then gets an admittedly well-handled send-off as Starfleet plays a clip from Zefram Cochran, who's has it, the part is being reprised by James Cromwell from First Contact, and this is kind of their because the three other spin-offs got someone from like the previous series to be in it to kind of send them off, and so this was their version of it since obviously they can't have one of the other characters, and the Enterprise flies off towards Kronos and the Great Unknown of space. Cut to a scene on a weird-looking space station, and a sulliban named Silic, we find his name out later on in the, in the season, uh, he's speaking with a mysterious figure in a weird-sounding room. This mysterious figure comes off as ominous until you find out his name is Future Guy. Yep. I'm dead serious. He was called that as a joke at first and eventually got turned into canon.
1: Oh, good lord.
0: Yep. Uh, Oh, and by the way, we never actually find out who this guy is in the show. He shows up all of three times. Once here, once in Shockwave Part 2, which is the Season 2 premiere, and once in the Season 2 finale, and that's it. We never see him or hear about him ever again. Wonderful. So, back on Enterprise, Archer speaks with Dr. Phlox. He was the alien doctor who was at Starfleet and working on Clang. And this is actually a decent moment. Phlox comes off as he's optimistic, he's cheerful. He actually goes through a lot of – he gets better throughout the show, but I kind of like him in this scene. Oh, and he uh, makes a strange noise to one of his pets that no word of a lie (laughs) – I love this moment. This was on Memory Alpha. Uh, apparently he did this noise during his audition and everyone liked it. He did this once, this part during the pilot. The director called cut, looked at him and said, Are you shitting me? And he was told never to do it again. <laughs> I like that. We then get a pointless
1: scene with Mayweather and Trip where and they're eight. trying to build character but it just doesn't come off very well.
0: Yep. And it serves no real purpose. Fantastic. And uh, Trip is made out to be an idiot again. Fantastic.
1: <sighs>
0: we then get the dinner scene. Archer to Paul and Trip meet together for dinner. This actually becomes a reoccurring thing in um the next week like throughout the show which Unlike this scene is actually not that bad later on, uh-huh. and because it's in this scene, that Paul goes from being a generic arrogant Vulcan to be a total, a contemptible person. I saved that pretty well, didn't
1: I? Yeah, yeah, you did.
0: Uh, she insults humans for being carnivores because. Biz- Vulcans are vegetarians, which is fine. Uh, this was established with Spock and Tuvok and other Vulcans. But she insults humans, calling them carnivores, forgetting that we're omnivores, and acts high and mighty, saying that eating the flesh of animals shows they're primitive. Okay, so Paul is a Vulcan. Hold on. And kind of, you also, talk about this. I want to check on something. Okay, and a diplomat. Okay. Logically, what purpose does this serve to insult the people whose ship you're on right now who already don't like you? Is there literally any logic involved in this? Not to mention the fact that I've heard human vegetarians act and talk the same way as her. paul bite me. And there is actually a lot of little sniping and stuff in this. However, I do like a little comment is Paul mentions like it's like She wants to know maybe if humans will go back to being as primitive as they used to be, to which Tripp replies, you know, humans used to be cannibals. I hope this isn't a long trip.
1: Here we go. Mm-hmm. Uh and I want to check on Memory Alpha. Uh uh-huh. Most Vulcans were vegetarians, not all. Nerd! Okay. They show Spock eating meat.
0: Yeah, they do point out um, in this one. There's actually a later episode where they run into Vulcans that do eat meat, and they're considered – this is also – keep in mind, there is a big changeover of Vulcans in season four. Uh Uh, This is before that. At this point, the Vulcans that do eat meat are considered lower parts of society and not looked upon nicely. Yeah, this show sucks. Yep. Yep. So cut to the bridge where Hoshi freaks out because she's never been in space, even though she's part of a group called Starfleet. However, there's actually kind of an explanation for this in season four, which is quite funny. We find out that she was actually at one point temporarily kicked out of the academy after punching a superior officer when he found out about her illegal poker games. Uh, On a very positive note in this, uh, when Mayweather is told... To bring the ship up to warp four point five, which is a speed no human ship has ever reached before, he has this real look of just reverence for what he's doing. You know, he realizes that he's in control of the fastest Earth ship ever, and I actually really like that moment. So, kudos to that scene, like everyone involved in that. I kudos to the actor on that one. And then we go back to Hoshi freaking out because Klang wakes up and is yelling at them, and she's scared of a guy who is strapped to a table. <sighs> I swear she gets better in this show. I hope so. And then we get to a point where I realized I am the biggest friggin' nerd on the planet. She can't figure out what Klang is saying, but I actually kind of figured out a line. At one point, he yells at her with a phrase containing the word Stovakor, which is Klingon heaven. Knowing Klingons, I'm assuming he was telling her to go to hell. However, or Grethor he was asking is asking for a
1: warrior's e- death.
0: That too. However, so as I also know, Grethor is the Klingon version of hell. Oh, I'm a nerd. I'm Warfare. surrounded
1: by geeks. <laughs> I'm a huge frickin' nerd. Yeah, well, oh. it happens. No big deal.
0: We then get a kind of funny moment <laughs> where uh, the lights go – like the power goes out because the Sulaban attacked them. And at one point, Klang is just screaming and yelling and stuff, and Archer shouts, Will you t- figure out how to tell him to shut up? And Hoshi just looks at him and goes, Shut up! Okay, I, I have to admit – That was I- funny. <laughs> yeah, I like that part. That was good. <laughs> so Klang is taken away by the Sulaban. Archer yells at his staff for not detecting cloaked alien ships because he's an idiot. Paul, then tells him his mission has failed because he lost Clang. and Archer argues semantics by saying, I didn't lose him, he was taken. No, really, I thought he just misplaced him somewhere on the ship. Archer is an idiot. Paul is, yeah, Paul's an ass, but Archer, you're a moron. So the Sullivan interrogate Klang to find out he met someone named Saren on Rigel 10, so off to Rigel 10. They get to Rigel 10, along – so does the Enterprise crew, and Paul cautions the crew about being intimate with the people there because she thinks she's on a ship full of horny idiots.
1: To be clear, the doctor told her to tell him that.
0: Uh, this is true. I mean, it, it is a little unfair, though. I mean, they comment of like, oh – can we eat stuff? And so she's like, no, you just shouldn't be intimate. This would have been better if they didn't almost immediately cut to a scene with Reed and Mayweather in a strip club. Archer and Hoshi find Sulaban, uh, who are apparently part of a different group of Suleban than the ones attacking them, and they find out that the other Suleban are involved in a temporal cold war. What? Yeah. What is the temporal cold war, you might be asking yourself and everybody with a brain? I honestly don't completely know because it's never fully explained. It's the biggest screw up in this show and probably all of Trek because it's something that was created with no plan. The concept of it was that in the far future, like 29th century, time travel is so frequent, like it's so easy to do that they had to create laws around it, and some people don't like the laws, and now there's a cold war going on between different factions in different time periods. The Daleks and, and the Time Lords, I get it. And so... Yes, that was a su- terrible
1: joke. I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the rev- resolution involved that time-traveling alien Nazis from the future comment I made earlier. It sucks. It didn't go anywhere. And unfortunately, it was set up as part of the premise for the show.
1: You know, in another universe, this could have been a really good thing if they would reached out to, doc- to the BBC for a Doctor Who like crossover. Hell, there's that comic book that crosses over... <laughs> The 11th Doctor and Next Generation, and it's written better than this, which is Uh, I also recommend. Apparently, the whole time travel thing was enforced by the network
0: because they wanted more futuristic stuff.
1: In a series that takes place before the original.
0: Yeah, they're dumb. So they get into a firefight. We get more incompetence from the crew, and we actually get a moment where Archer sees that T'Pol is knocked unconscious and drops her weapon, looks at her gun, jumps over to it, picks it up, and starts doing the dual gunner routine.
1: Which actually makes your accuracy worse, but that's another story.
0: Yeah. He then gets shot in the leg, which then is just a burn because the guns in this show suck. And we'll get to the continuation of this just after a quick break.
1: You humans claim to be enlightened, yet you still consume the flesh of animals.
0: Grandma taught me never judge a species by their eating habits. Enlightened might be too strong a word, but if you'd been on Earth 50 years ago, I think you'd be impressed by what we've gotten done.
1: You have yet to embrace either patience or a logic. You remain impulsive carnivores. Yeah. How about war, disease, hunger? Pretty much wiped them out in less than two generations. I wouldn't call that small potatoes.
0: We're back, and this scene, I mean, it's something that keeps popping up throughout the rest of, like, seasons one and two, so I kind of want to talk about it. The decon chamber
1: scene. Oh, my. Yeah.
0: Can't tell me that
1: wasn't Cheesecake and Beefcake, respectively, for male and female audiences. Completely.
0: I like the idea of it. It's not like TNG, where they can't go... Okay, you're you're healed. Like in first contact, where Doctor Crusher goes, "I'm going to inoculate you from radiation."
1: Oh, you know? uh, what? You don't remember that part? I, I I remember it. I'm. There's a lot of bad science there.
0: Yeah, I actually I like this idea of them. They don't have a way to immediately decontaminate the people, or they don't have a transporter that can phase out like this stuff.
1: Right. I mean, one of the major things on the transport in the main series is that they can filter out any kind of pathogen that someone would pick up most of the time.
0: Yeah, and when they can't, it usually becomes a plot point. Right. So, I like that. I do like this idea. Unfortunately, it's replaced with a male and female lead of the show rubbing each other down with goop while the camera zooms in on them rubbing themselves
1: into Paul's well, let's just say this room must have been really cold. Yeah, you know what? It would have been a more efficient way to do this. Make like the decontaminations mm-hmm. just gas that sprays around them and end this scene in ten seconds.
0: So they eventually head over to Sulabana HQ, and we get our first space battle, and it kind of sucks. Yeah, yeah. The effects in this episode are actually very good. That a lot of them hold up pretty damn well. So I'll give them that. But the Enterprise has almost no weapons. There's even a comment earlier on where Reed mentions that the targeting systems aren't even set up yet. Yeah, there's, a re- there's, there's part of a reason why the Vulcans said you're not ready yet. And we get, again, another good idea that's not executed all that great, which is the concept of polarizing the hull. This is their answer to having no force fields at the time. No which, shields, again, yeah. Yeah, they don't have shields. They don't even have regular force fields in the ship. I really like the idea of them going, okay, what they're doing is they're running a current through the hull plating to harden it and make it more resistance to it, resistant to attacks. I like that idea. Unfortunately, all they do is go back to what they did with the shields, and when, the whole get, when they get hit, they're like, oh, hull plating is down to 23%. Yeah,
1: if what? your hull plating is down to that, you're, they must replace sections of the ship like en masse.
0: So, and then they say the whole plating is offline, which, again, I get it. The polarization is offline. But if you're saying the hole is offline, that means it's broken. You it's you can't just reroute stuff to give more power to it. It's not the same as shields. Which, as I, if Debris had the best comment about this, where he said, this would be like them saying chair is offline and an archer just falls out of his seat. On the plus side... They use a grappler instead of a tractor beam because they don't have one. They don't have the technology. And it's actually – there are plot points where they can't use it the same way as a tractor beam. So I like that. That's something that's executed well. They go to the Suliban HQ. Pete, if you were in command of a starship, you had to send two people on a dangerous mission using an alien spaceship. Who would you send along?
1: My best pilot and a good security officer. Well, screw
0: you, because Archer and Trip are going. Because that makes sense. This is something that is kind of done in a lot of the spinoffs where the captain always seems to go on every away mission. At least TNG tried to stop that, where Riker would quote to Picard, No, you can't go. It's Starfleet policy. I'm supposed to go.
1: And Picard would just ignore it.
0: Yeah, at least they made an effort to explain. It was just Picard's, you know, wants to go, wants to do his own thing. Which
1: makes sense. You don't send a commanding officer into possible danger. Agreed. I, I, Which... Even if you have a talented command structure below you, I mean, you're responsible for the ship. And especially
0: in a situation where you're going... They even say there's a couple hundred Sulaban in that structure. You want to send a guy that knows how to shoot people. And you want to use the experienced pilot. Yeah. But instead we get Trip, who ran a pod into the motionless NX-01 earlier in the episode.
1: Great, he scratched the paint.
0: And then Archer go, goes with him, which, and this is not the last time this happens. This happens throughout the rest of the show, of Archer going on every single away mission. So they do end up rescuing Clang, and Archer... Eventually gets into a fist fight as Trip and Clang get away, and we get to find out something about Archer is that not only is he a moron, he can't fight worth crap. If I remember right, he loses almost every single fist fight in this entire show. Unlike the other captains, who each one got moments where they got to either physically kick some ass or just be a badass, such as Janeway standing straight up to the board without batting an eye. Cisco punching Q in the face, which I think that trumps everything right there. And
1: Q's only episode in that series, too. Yep. Uh, And you've got Picard, who I think my favorite moment is when he's standing up to the aliens in silhouette, and he uses their own treaty against them.
0: I like the way Picard is done is he comes off as just very confident, and he can sometimes just outwit people, especially in the episodes where he deals with Klingons. If you watch any of those episodes, such as, like, Sins of the Father, Reunion, he is a badass. He stands right up to Klingons, yells at, basically tells them to shut up when they're shouting. He's actually pretty cool. Meanwhile, Archer just gets his ass kicked by everybody. In a good moment, Archer gets transported out of the station because they have no other way of getting him. And after he tele- transports in, he just kind of, like, taps himself, looks around, and trips like, we didn't have another choice.
1: I like that. There's a, he, get, he just looks at the guy who transported him, with this like, what? And then he like puts his hands all over his body just to make sure everything's in place. And yep. if this were a real, a real incident, he'd probably just do a check to make sure his balls were there too, but they don't show that.
0: <laughs> yeah. They can show the decon chamber scene, but they can't show Archer. They can't do like the Austin Powers moment where he's like, oh, thank God. Yeah. So they return Klang to his home to prevent a Klingon civil war because the Sulaban were behind his. And who cares? So Archer gets orders that they can begin their mission of exploration and kind of asks Paul to come along because she'll actually be helpful. Mm-hmm. And oh. he's maturing and learning. Well, she had the opportunity to leave him behind and yeah. didn't. And. Unfortunately, the episode ends with
1: Archer directing the ship into an ion storm, saying you can't be afraid of the wind. But you can be – and you can't be afraid of something that could deliberately damage your ship. <sighs> aye,
0: aye, aye. Out of all that, how is this episode? It's okay. The main problems that this pilot has are the problems that are part of the first two seasons. Like what I said earlier about how Voyager's pilot set up stuff that wasn't capitalized on very well, this show sets up stuff that is done in during the show. Unfortunately, all of it's not very good. It's essentially the bad characterization. We don't get good fe- – like we don't really get to know this crew. And yes, it's just the pilot, but we don't get any real emotional attachment to them. The storytelling is basically directionless. They just kind of bumble around the first two seasons. The Temporal Cold War plot, I think that speaks for itself and how stupid it was. The Vulcans are jerks. The humans are idiots. And yes, all three of the other spin offs had problems in their first seasons.
1: Oh, God, yes. And,
0: yeah. I mean, and it's understandable for them. TNG was the first Star Trek show period in over 10 years, like, like 15 years or something. That, so that's understandable. DS9 was something different. You know. It wasn't about a ship exploring space. But it did manage to... Basically, it was struggling to find itself and did manage to find itself with an amazing episode, Duet, which is, in my opinion, one of the best episodes of the whole damn show.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But my problem is they should have learned by now. And it's not like it was brand new people in this franchise. Bourbon and Braga had been working on this since TNG. They should have known how to do this right by now. And so later on, it does get better, but that doesn't happen until season three. But it's not all bad. I love the set design of this show. I think it looks really good. Like, it's – it feels familiar of previous shows, and it feels like the actual prequel to the original series. You know, it's less advanced, but looks a little bit similar. Like, T'Pol even has, like, the little um, viewer screen like Spock had.
1: Uh
0: I like that. And I really like the uniforms, too.
1: And, again, this show looks really good on a visual So form. why doesn't T'Pol wear a uniform? Just because she's a Vulcan science?
0: Yeah, she's not actually part of Starfleet. Ah. She is still, uh, she's still a sub-commander in the Vulcan High Command. Gotcha. And according to Notes a Memory Alpha, this pilot had about a $12 million budget, and it really showed. Oh, the
1: set design is
0: beautiful. Yeah, the effects are really good, too. Like, it actually holds up pretty damn well. And the acting is actually not that bad. Some of it's a little mixed, but, again, I mean, it's the actors getting used to these parts. And Scott Bakula is a good actor. He does a good job. Just And any of my complaints about Archer don't have anything to do with the performance. He does a fine job with what he's given. I like John Billingsley as Phlox. Um, Connor Trenier is bleh in this episode – Again, it's kind of just finding the way in bad writing at this point. Later on in season three, holy crap, he's good. And the other characters are outside of, like, the Doctor, Archer, Trip, and Paul, They don't get
1: much development. No. And... No, there's not a lot of character development here. Where in every other pilot, they get the main character points down pretty easily.
0: Again, again. later on, they do a little bit better with the characters, but it's a bad start for them. And I just wish the show could have gotten a better strong start to it. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back after
1: a quick break. They're hailing us. Audio only. You will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. Okay, we're back. So, again, it's not a bad pilot, but it it doesn't exactly inspire me to see more of the show. Granted, neither did DS9. Um, but, I'll, yeah. I'll agree to that. Uh, but there's a certain mystique to Picard as his final line of his pilot, like I mentioned earlier. Let's see what's out there. And not everyone likes Voyager's pilot. I can, I'll grant you that. But Voyager, Jane Lee's determined is determined as all hell to get her people home, even from the Delta Quadrant. So, uh, I mean, her line is, you know, set a course for home. So. And, but, like you said, there's just not enough good character moments. The reverse gravity moment just feels out of place. They're trying to build, I get they're trying to build character, but with tech, this whole forced nostalgia with technology more primitive than Kirk's, just doesn't work. So let's move on to Season 2, Episode 23.
0: Regeneration.
1: In other words, we need ratings. Here's some Borg. Yeah, basically, that's what happened. Or to quote Voltaire's The USS Makes Shit Up. We were
0: looking for a way to make the ratings soar, so we orchestrated an encounter with the Borg. Yeah, in season two, throughout seasons one and two, the ratings dropped pretty badly. Like I said, the, the pilot started off with about 12 million viewers. At this point, they were down to about four or five million uh, one of the one of the causes of this was actually a night in sickbay. If you look at the ratings starting with that episode, they drop so horribly. That episode they actually gained in a few like a good amount of viewers. I think they had like six million.
1: By like two or three episodes later, they had lost about half that. It was insane. Well. Regeneration, It's here's a mem- mini-summary from Memory Alpha. A scientific team in the Arctic discovers two mysterious cyborgs similar to those described by Zephram Cochran. at least emulate the scientists and move into space, the Enterprise is called to find the cybernetic beings and stop them. Okay.
0: I have to ask you a question, though, and I think you get – I don't know if you saw this connection – Was it just me, or did you get any Jason X flashbacks during the beginning of this episode?
1: (laughs) Now that you mention it. (laughs) Okay. In Star Trek First Contact, one of the major plot points that gets the Borg on the Enterprise is that after they go through time, the Enterprise blows the crap out of the Borg spear. I mean, we're talking atomized dusts, or at least it should be... And uh so the Borg do an emergency teleport over to the Enterprise. Who really should have their shields up, but that's another story.
0: I think there was a plot reason for them not having the shields up like the power was messed up right, or something. Right, probably from time travel, whatever.
1: Yeah. Um so I'm calling foul on this plot point that there could be Borg in the Arctic in twenty one sixty one or twenty one whatever fifty. 51. 51. Okay, that spear didn't crash. It blew up in space. So, what debris that there are left, if it fell into Earth's gravity well, and say, instead of the moon, would burn up in atmosphere? And even if it survived the heat of re entry, it's going at terminal velocity. This point in the movie, if Picard had seen the spear was still intact, albeit crashing, he would have blown it up further. He knows how dangerous the Borg are, so even if the remnants of spear are managed to survive re-entry, somehow hitting the Arctic over North America, they should have been road pieces on impact. This wasn't a car crash at 30 miles an hour. This is terminal velocity, with the heat of re-entry. Now, I would readily accept this story more easily if this was on the moon or how about Wolf 359 where the battle where that major battle against the Borg cube just decimated the Federation fleet that would make more sense but Earth are you telling me that no one on the planet much less the Vulcans dicks ex- as they may be have detected the presence of Borg technology before now yeah, this is a major plot hole. Nerd! That being well, said, let see. There's
0: a very good explanation for all this. They had did emergency ratings. wizard, rating.
1: did it? I will reach the internet and slap you. No,
0: they had emergency ratings
1: shielding. Oh, oh that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> then please explain the episode
0: so this episode a group of scientists find frozen Borg up in the Arctic and (sighs) not knowing what they are and noticing that they're dead
1: mostly dead
0: mostly dead supposedly which this brings in the stupid moment of basically they find out that these things these creatures these aliens have nanoprobes in them that bring them back to life uh i'll let you explain this plot hole so this is a plot hole because in every single previous episode with the borg they could never do that if a borg died it was dead or it was dead they would destroy they would either self-destruct be destroyed, or be disassembled so the parts could be used for other Borg. Nanoprobes cannot reanimate dead tissue. Nerd! Yes, there is an episode of Voyager where they technically bring Neelix back to life. I am not counting that because that episode, one, sucked, and two, he wasn't completely dead yet. Mostly dead. I'm We're surrounded right? by geeks! Exactly. He wasn't frozen for over a century in a block of
1: ice. And if you want to argue that this is a Captain America kind of scenario, uh, bull. See my other earlier argument about terminal velocity and the heat of reentry. Mm-hmm. So that was wrong. So essentially, the Borg are literally zombies.
0: That's my best explanation at this point. So the Borg. Call come Ash back Williams. To life. Huh? Paul Ash Williams. The Borg come back to life. They assimilate the humans and the scientific outpost. Yep, and then they fly off and they steal their ship, modify it with Borg tech, and fly off,
1: which presumably heading up, for the Delta Quadrant.
0: Yeah, they bring up a funny comment at one point where um, Admiral where Admiral Forrest. Uh, he's he's like one of the big people in Starfleet. He he was in the pilot as well. Um, he mentions that the research team was heavily armed. What the hell kind of research team goes around heavily armed?
1: I want to add something to this. This research team deserves the the official Prometheus Stupid Scientist Award. I'll give them the Jason X Award. No, Jason X is at least campy. We were supposed to take Prometheus seriously, remember? I haven't seen it. Suffice to say, in Prometheus, we have some of the worst scientists... In existence, including a map maker, a cartographer, uses drones that use visible spectrum lasers to map everything, who gets lost. (laughs) And when they they find alien life, who is clearly doing the universal signal of back up, they Mm -hmm. reach out and try and touch it. (laughs) So they get the too dumb to live award. Yeah, this is where I'm getting at. YOU'RE DUMB! DUMB! Because the main chief scientist, when his underling points out, uh, what if these things come back to life? He's like, oh, they're not going to be hostile.
0: Your password would be too dumb to live.
1: And he even points out they don't look friendly. He's like, well, whatever. And he points out maybe we should put these guys in cold storage until we can figure this out.
0: At least there was one voice of reason among them. He got completely
1: ignored, but at least he existed. Again. You win the Prometheus Stupid Scientist Award.
0: So the Borg fly off, Archers contacted, and Enterprise goes to intercept them as they're attacking a Tarkalian transport. They beat the crap out of the ship because it's still, you know, putting itself back together, and the Borg are kind of messed up.
1: Well, admittedly, the Borg it's- have limited technology to work with.
0: Oh, Exactly. They beam over the survivors. They let the ship go because they want to save the people on the transport find two Tarkalians, we're who are partially infected with
1: Borg crap. They're on their way to be fully assimilated. Yep. And
0: Phlox, who also gets to win the I'm an idiot award, It's like, oh, they won't be a problem if they wake up. Don't worry about it.
1: Whoops! Yeah. Nanoprobes in your neck. Yep. <laughs> he deserved that. Yeah, that's We're talking about their chief physician, for the record.
0: Oh uh, Yeah, and one of the only doctors on the ship. We rarely see others. Yeah. So that happens. The Borg try to take over the ship, and in an admittedly really good scene, Archer is told that they can't
1: stop the Borg from doing what they're doing. The Borg, the, they've already adapted to their lower-grade ph- phase. phasers.
0: Yep, and so Archer looks over to Paul. Blows him out into space! Yep. I know. And I really like the tone in this, though, where he looks at her, realizes that's the only option, and asks, is there a, you know decompression, you know, is there a door there that we can shoot them out of? She goes, yes. He orders Reed and the security get out of there, and then quietly and calmly tells them to eject the Borg into space. I really like this moment.
1: I do too. And I'm wondering if it's an alien reference, but that's just me.
0: Phlox then starts working on a way to restore him, to cure himself, because he's like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm screwed. And so... They go off looking for the Borg again. Archer brings up to Paul that at one point Cochrane, ignoring the fact that he was probably told don't tell people about the Borg, told everybody about the Borg during a commencement speech at a college. Whoops. Yep. Paul, actually logically points out, yes, he was brilliant. He was also a complete drunk, which is true. Yep. Archer doesn't really have a response for that. I'm fine with that. I like that moment where he goes, eh, she does kind of have a point.
1: But he's also right, but that's another story.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is kind of – it is hard to bo- – in that situation, I can understand her, willing, her unwillingness to believe that. Right.
1: But <laughs> they got problems because uh, that transport comes back.
0: Yep. Well, they catch up to it. Uh-huh. And – Archer has to make a decision of, do we destroy it and write off everyone on it? Or try and save it. Exactly. And we'll tell you his decision right after a quick break.
1: Did you learn where the message was sent? Somewhere deep in the Delta Quadrant. Then I doubt there's any immediate danger. It would take at least 200 years for a subspace message to reach the Delta Quadrant, assuming it's received at all. Well, Plox has been looking for a cure, and he basically tells Archer, if I can't do this, kill me. I don't want to become one of these guys. That's a good moment. Yeah.
0: So they find the Borg. They try contacting the Borg. And and we get get the infamous line, you will be assimilated, resistance is futile. Which, this part actually rubs a lot of people the wrong way, um, because the Borg's usual – Opening line is "We are the Borg. You will be assimilated." Mm-hmm. I Fair believe enough. they're, yeah, that that's fine. They did give an explanation that in season two, when they first ran into the Borg, they didn't introduce themselves that way. So either way, whatever. It's it's a small point.
1: Yeah. Also, the fact that
0: yeah, they have to keep canon. So
1: really, the trans- really keep canon. Do I need to bring up terminal velocity again? <laughs>
0: No, that's common sense. This is canon. Okay. Fine. So, Tucker is is trying to remove all the board crap that got put into the Enterprise. So, Archer and Reed decide to go over to the board ship using the shockingly still-working transporter. Their weapons are busted, but the transporter still works, I guess. And I do like the fact that both of them are kind of, oh, crap, we're using this thing again. Yep. So they go over there, and Reed actually does take time during this episode to modify the phase pistols so they can actually damage the Borg. Yep, and hey, they're doing some pretty forward thinking. Yeah. Reed gets a good moment here, finally. So they go over there, they shoot down a bunch of Borg. At one point, Archer disables ones, like Picard, by just ripping the uh, hoses out of one of their
1: heads. You really think the Borg would have developed a better defense mechanism against that? I know, right? So.
0: so they end up having to shoot one of the Borg and kill it, walk over and realize it's one of the people from the science research team on Earth.
1: And that's and when Archer realizes that there is no helping these people. Yeah. They're gone. There's no
0: way. He set – they set a bunch of bombs. They transport away. The transport is heavily damaged by the bombs, and it slowly starts to regenerate, and Archer gives the command to destroy it. Well,
1: yeah, the other drones had beamed over to the Enterprise before this happened, and – Tried to sabotage the ship even further, but they realize when their own ship is getting messed up, they rush over to repair it. But yeah. Archer just had – he's had enough of these Borg on – I won't do the same.
0: Had enough of these monkey-fighting Borg on his Monday to Friday transport. Correct.
1: So yeah. they blowed it up.
0: And again – he doesn't give, like, a whole speech about it. He does – you know, they don't get a moment where T'Pol tells them the logical decision to destroy it, and he chews her head off for being a stupid Vulcan. He just calmly and coldly says, we need to destroy them. Blow it up.
1: And to his credit, no one questions this.
0: Yep. It was really good. And so Phlox ends up curing himself By with a –
1: radiation and a lot yay! of it. Yep, so he's okay because they had to find a way for him to, to heal himself. Because I'm sure he, he won't develop cancer for anything like that.
0: Yep, and he just went to the decon chamber, um, rubbed crap all over himself. So he then tells Paul and Archer, though, that he was hearing voices in his head, and no, he's not really crazy, and gives them a pad with some numbers on it that he – you know, that basically he felt like the aliens were trying to send out a message. He
1: kept hearing them again and again and again.
0: And Paul and Archer study it, and the two of them talk and reveal that it was a message sending for reinforcements, and it was sent all the way to the Delta Quadrant. And Paul reassures him and goes, well, don't worry. There's no immediate worry. It's will take about 200 years to get there, even if it even gets there at all. <laughs> <And>
1: so- <laughs> it does.
0: And they end the episode basically on an ominous note. Well, so what do you think? So besides the premise, what did you th- like the the basics
1: of this? What did you think of this episode? Honestly, if they had done this any other way, but you know, the first contact angle, if they'd done mm-hmm. this at Wolf Three Five Nine, I wouldn't have any issues with this episode. I mean, if you're gonna bring in the Borg, do it in a plausible way that. Doesn't activate all of my MythBusters senses, <laughs> and I'm cool. But I'm sitting there and I'm thinking. My first inclination, because I didn't catch this, was an Earth Arctic. I thought they were on a polar planet. I'm like, okay. I remember when you texted me about that. Yeah. <laughs> and I
0: replied back, "Oh, they're on Earth," and you're like,
1: "What?" Um, other than that, not a bad episode. Yes, it's done for ratings, and I can see why, but the good news is they can't use the Vorg ever again. Right?
0: Correct. You know They don't oh, show up ever again don't. in Enterprise. Yeah, they don't show up again in Enterprise. Very good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is one of the two best episodes from the first two seasons, um, not including the season two finale, which was very solid. Uh, the other one is actually the following episode to this first flight, which I honestly think should have been thrown in Season 1, as actually should have been the first episode, but <laughs> I'll, that's an argument for another time. Yes, there are a bunch of logic holes. them actually being there for one. The Borg don't adapt equally, but they're also kind of messed up, so I can work around that. The nanomachines work when it's narratively convenient. The Borg literally becoming zombies. Brains.
1: And it, and, yeah.
0: And, yeah, it was made to get ratings because, hey, it worked for Voyager when they did the Scorpion two-parter and Dark Frontier. That being said, this episode's fantastic. There's good characterization, great action and special effects, there's a tense feeling that's helped by really good music and the fast pace, and all the actors are good. Archer has played out really well. As I mentioned, I really like the moments where he's calm and collected as he should be in those moments, and you can tell... That deciding to kill the people does weigh on him, but he knows it was the only choice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And yes, we as viewers can see him I mean, as naive as he's like, oh, maybe I can rescue them. And, but it's understandable in universe because he literally doesn't know that he can't. Mm-hmm. And later on, when the Borg were sabotaging his ship, you can see the lament he has for rejecting them out into the space. T'Pol is actually handled well. I like Reed's part in this episode. I think it's a very good episode, and I would definitely recommend it. If anyone's thinking of watching through Enterprise, watch the pilot, watch this, watch First Flight, and then jump right to the Season 2 finale. Ignore everything else. Mm-hmm. So yeah, great job to
1: everybody. Okay. Uh, I think we've come a long way since viewing a crappy Next Generation episode. What do you want I to do next? I think so, too. Hmm. you know... Life is like a hurricane. Don't no, no no no. We're not putting earworms on people. Here in what what
0: is the name of that city again?
1: Don't Duckburg. Yeah. Um we're not looking at DuckTales the series, so don't worry about we and I since I'll be editing I'm not putting the theme song in this in the episode. Mm. But we will take a look at one of the more famous video games that came out that series. Sort of. Yep. We're going to be looking at the remake of the original DuckTales NES, put out by Capcom a couple years ago.
0: DuckTales Remastered. Woohoo. No. No, no
1: woohoo. <laughs> See you next time, folks. Space the final frontier. These are the continuing voyages of the starship Enterprise. Their ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life forms and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone.